I, I'm so old that when, when our youth group collected toilet paper, it wasn't for a cause quite as good as, as what you're doing it. Somehow it would end up on people's houses and trees. And, but anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's not my point today. My point today is um, I'm Bud Brainerd. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Lake Forest Church Davidson. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. And as long as you don't have it all together, you're going to fit right in with the rest of us. So today we're beginning a, uh, a new sermon series for Lent. Now, you might ask yourself, what is Lent? Well, it's not the stuff that you clean out of your dryer or your belly button. Lent is actually a 40-day period leading up to Easter. It's a time historically that the church has used for reflection and for preparation. And so today, our, uh, our sermon is going to be a reflection on and preparation for temptation. Temptation is something that uh, every human being since Adam has faced. I face it. You face it, and Jesus faced it. It comes in too many ways to mention, but regardless of how temptation comes to us, it represents a binary decision point, meaning you can only do one of two things. Our identity in Christ is always being either confirmed or denied. And in every instance of temptation, we either demonstrate or we deny our identity in Christ. So today's sermon is going to speak to how we can effectively and faithfully deal with temptation. We're not going to focus necessarily on the specifics of temptation because, there, like I said, there are just too many of those. What we will focus on is the devil's strategy in temptation. And then we're going to learn how Jesus overcame temptation. So, if you're a note taker, today would be a good day to take notes. So let's just jump right in. We're going to go back to the to the beginning of the scripture that was read for us, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. If you've got your Bibles or if there's one in the pew, I invite you to follow along and it'll also be on the screen for those of you that are visually challenged like me. <clears throat> I have everything in large print, by the way. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then immediately after his baptism, Jesus sets out to show us what it looks like to live out this affirmation of God. And he does that by facing temptation. It's almost as if God knows that the very first thing that we're going to have to learn to do as followers of Christ 
is to face and overcome temptation. If we can face and overcome temptation, then our lives will reflect the power of the gospel. So in the first verse of chapter 4, we find a cast of characters introduced. We find Jesus, we find the Spirit, and we find the devil. And that's the entire cast of characters for the scripture that we're going to look at today. Matthew 4.1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In thinking about this, I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be dandy, wouldn't it be great if we did not have to face temptation? Jesus thought so. Later on in Matthew, when he teaches the Lord's Prayer to his followers, he said, be sure that you include this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It would be great if we didn't have to face temptation. But the reality is that we all do. We face it in this life. Every one of us will face it. And Jesus faces temptation as well. And he does that in order to show us how to respond. Now, in some ways, temptation is neither good nor bad. It just is. It's how we react and respond to temptation that matters. The reason that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness was to face temptation and to overcome it so that Jesus could then show us the way. I want to give you a new way of thinking about temptation this morning. In the Bible, temptation is analogous to confirmation. In the Bible, temptation is analogous to confirmation. By definition, confirmation is a public rite that includes a profession of faith by someone who is already baptized. So when we baptize a young person or when we baptize an infant, we do that in the hope that at some point in the future, they will claim that faith for themselves. They will profess their faith in Christ. And so as young adults, as middle-aged adults, as older adults, in one sense, we are still going through confirmation. Because every time temptation comes, we have that opportunity to either deny or to declare our identity in Christ. Every time that Jesus is tempted, it is an opportunity for him to confirm his identity. And every time that we are tempted, it is an opportunity for us to to proclaim our identity in Christ. So let's look at the first temptation that Jesus faces. Matthew Chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. If you're familiar with the whole story, that, that rings a bell. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights before he received the Ten Commandments, the law. And here Jesus fasts for exactly the same number of days, exactly the same number of nights before revealing the gospel. 
Is that a coincidence? Probably not. After passing through the waters of the Red Sea, Israel's confirmation took place in the wilderness of sin. And now Jesus' baptism in the waters of the Jordan is followed by him going into the wilderness of Judea. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. Because God loves symmetry. The next verse. The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I want you to notice here that Matthew does not call the devil by his name. He identifies him by his role. He is the tempter. The devil's goal, his role, if you will, his purpose is to tempt, seduce, and to split relationships between people and especially between people and God. That's what he does. That's his job. Note that the tempter begins his invitation by saying, if If you are the Son of God, in his baptism, Jesus heard a voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Temptation often begins with an invitation to doubt. An invitation to doubt who we are in Christ. The tempter is trying to get Jesus to doubt what God had told him about himself. God's beloved children, marked by their baptism, should know that temptation often begins with inviting you to question who you are in Christ. And if the tempter can get you to question your identity in Christ, then everything else that God has said gets called into question. My friends, the truth of your baptism is never in doubt from God's perspective. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he, when he w- went through periods of, of depression and questioning whether or not he, he belonged to Christ, he would take his hand and he would place it on his own forehead and he would say, I have been baptized. It was his way of reminding himself of his identity in Christ. Temptations are opportunities for the confirmation of our faith. When that little voice in your head whispers into your ear, how can you be a child of God? Look at all the problems you have. Either we believe the voice of baptism or we believe the voice of the tempter. My wife, Becky, who couldn't be here today, she's taking care of of single moms and babies up in the mountains of North Carolina with young wives. But her God story has one of the best illustrations of this challenge that I know. When Becky and I met, I had been divorced after a 27-year marriage. Becky was getting divorced, her husband, She had four boys. Her husband left, abandoned them. And Becky was really questioning. She was in a very hard place. She was questioning, how can I be a child of God? 
if I have all these problems. She attended a weekend retreat called Walk to Emmaus. It's a 72-hour spiritual retreat. And one of the events in a Walk to Emmaus is that they throw a banquet for the participants. And on her walk, and it was, it was, it's all men or all women, on her walk, as the participants entered the banquet room, now don't get too excited, it was a, it was a, it was a room in the basement of a, of, a, of a facility. It wasn't really all that fancy, but they, they fancied it up as best they could. As the women walked into that banquet hall, another woman placed a crown on each woman's head. Now, don't get too excited. It wasn't a great crown. It was actually a coat hanger uh, put in a circle, and then they wrapped the, you know, the little silver stars. You know what those are, the crafty stuff? You know, it was beautiful. They placed that on each woman's head, and as they placed it on Becky's head, they reminded her, as they did with every woman, you are a daughter of the king. Now, those words don't sound very powerful, but they are, and they were for her. Because in that moment, she reclaimed her baptismal identity. She was able to overcome all of the doubt, all of the questioning that she had had. With those words, Becky was reminded of her place in the kingdom. She was reminded of God's care, God's love, and her inestimable value and worth as a child of God. So my friends, remembering that you are a child of God is no small thing. Verse 2 ended with these words, He, Jesus, was hungry. Forty days, forty nights, no food, no water. I'd be hungry too. I would probably be hangry at that point. But take note that the tempter attacks Jesus at the most obvious point of weakness. Finding our weaknesses, and we all have them, yours are different than mine, but we all have weaknesses, that's the way the devil operates. The temptation is always personalized. What might be a temptation to me might not be a temptation to you at all. The tempter hits each one of us at our weakest points first. Jesus' stomach was empty. And so Jesus' stomach became the focus of the first temptation. Turn these stones into bread. Make yourself a sandwich. Jesus answered, he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus responds to this temptation and actually to every temptation, beginning his reply with these words, It is written. Scripture, my friends, Jesus was a man of the scriptures. He is not only the subject of scripture, he was a student of scripture. And by recalling scripture, and by believing his baptism, Jesus obeyed the spirit and overcame the tempter. The spirit of God will always lead us to confidence in the word of God and our sacramental identity. So Jesus defeats the devil with a book. The same book that you have access to today. 
Jesus found his way into ministry and around temptation with a faithful remembering of Scripture and sacrament. And the church shouldn't think that we have a better way. Not by bread alone. Don't over-spiritualize that. He didn't say not by bread at all. Because bread's important. We need bread to live. In that same prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is a necessity. Jesus multiplies bread to feed the 5,000. Bread is important. And the tempter uses that inescapable fact to turn Jesus' hunger into a real temptation for him. Don't imagine for a moment that Jesus wasn't tempted. But there's more. In saying that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus reminds us that there is an unseen famine in the world. The deepest famine in the world is the famine for the Word of God. We live in a world that is hungry for bread and that is hungry for God. People need both to live a full and meaningful life. So let's move to the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And here we get the second strategy that that the tempter uses. His first technique was to attack us at our weakest point. His second technique is aimed not at our second weakest point, but at our strongest. At our strongest. He aims at our strength. It's kind of a spiritual jujitsu, if you will. After trying to open Jesus up by tempting him to doubt his identity once again, he tempts Jesus to do something spectacular by quoting scripture to him. And here Jesus faces one of the most sinister and pervasive evils in the world. The perversion of scripture. The misuse of scripture has been the foundation that fueled the Nazis, It fueled the KKK. Almost every other hate group in the world. The scriptures are misused and perverted when used as a defense for spousal abuse. Scripture is a terrible weapon when used in the hands of the one who is hell-bent on dividing people from one another. And the result is, if we have a distorted view of scripture, we will have a distorted view of God. We will have a distorted view of ourselves and we will have a distorted view of others. To his credit, Jesus chooses not to enter in to a debate with the tempter, although we know who would win if he, if he had done that. He simply answers him this way. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's simply pointing out that testing God 
is not the same as trusting God. Jesus knows the whole of Scripture better than anybody, and he knows that all of Scripture hangs on two pegs. When Jesus was asked, what are the cliff notes? He said, well, here are the cliff notes. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two interpretive rules that Jesus uses when he comes to Scripture. He asks himself, first of all, does it honor God? And secondly, will it help the other person? And in case you were wondering, leaping from temples doesn't accomplish either of those. So, so far the devil has been unsuccessful tempting Jesus at the point of his weakness and hunger, unsuccessful at his point of strength knowing the scriptures. So what could possibly be left? The third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So having failed in tempting Jesus with saving his own life by, hey, make a sandwich, and after trying to get him to fall for a misapplication and misuse of God's word, there is one spot left to attack, and that's Jesus' heart. It's his heart. Jesus' love for the world. And this temptation is maybe the greatest of all. The third temptation is to make our work our God. Making this one of the most subtle and powerful of all temptations. Jesus' work as Messiah was to redeem the world, to reconcile the world to himself. The tempter offers Jesus the chance to accomplish his mission without much effort if he bows one knee. How simple is that? How efficient is that? Who would have thought that our devotion to our work might compromise our dedication to God. And yet, every week I work with people who have real jobs. They're not pastors. They have real jobs. And in working with them, I see this all the time. I hear the question, how can I live out my faith at work? It's as if somehow the workplace takes priority over or is somehow excluded from our living out our identity as a beloved child of God. If we seek to be successful at any price, we have made success our God. I'm going to say some things in the next few minutes that might make you squirm a little. But you just need to know that pastors struggle with this same dynamic. Making our work our God is one of the most subtle of all temptations. It is especially subtle because we can very easily convince ourselves that we are doing it for our family or that we're doing it for God. 
yet the temptation to make our work our God has destroyed countless marriages. And it has wrecked the relationship of countless parents with their children. And it's subtle. It happens in such small increments. Just one more night out on the road. Just one more late night at the office. You know, the devil doesn't ask Jesus to spend all eternity at his feet. If he had done that, that wouldn't have been very tempting. That wouldn't have been very subtle. All the devil asks for is a one-time little bend of the knee, one momentary bow, and Jesus gets the whole world. What is one small gesture when the entire planet hangs in the balance? Most of us have faced a situation where temporarily suspending our values to advance our career seems like such a small price to pay. After all, isn't it the outcome that matters? Don't the ends justify the means? No, they do not. If the means include denying our identity in Christ. So Jesus being tempted by this doesn't take the bait. He said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, I think Jesus is thinking about this very moment at the beginning of his ministry when he says to his disciples, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So if we examine together the three responses Jesus gives when tempted, we see two things. First of all, we see that Jesus relies upon the scriptures. And second, each response has God at its, as its focus. His first response, it is written, that's the scriptures. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Second response, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Third response, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know, most people, even people who, who have not trusted in Christ, most people see Jesus as a good teacher, a good friend, a guy who's for other people, and he is all those things. But first and foremost, Jesus was a man for God. His good teaching, his friendship, his putting other people first, all sprang from his being a beloved child of God. Now we have access to the same scriptures that Jesus had access to. Jesus believed that the scriptures were the very word of God. He believed that the scriptures point us to the source of life, the source of strength, which allows us to confirm our faith when we face temptation. Jesus wants each of us to remember at all times that God is for us and that we can be for God. Our baptism reminds us that we belong to God. I love the way Matthew closes his account of the temptation. He says, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. It's interesting that that the angels that the devil called on said, you know, God will send angels and they'll protect you and you won't 
you won't hurt yourself when you jump off the temple. Those angels now appear. But this time they're sent by God. Among so many other things in this account of Jesus' temptation, it is that it began with the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness where there was no food and no water. And now at the end of these temptations, Jesus has confirmed his faith, his baptismal identity as a child of God. And angels come literally, the word means, to wait on his table. That's what the word attending literally means in the Greek. They came to wait on his table. They came to serve him. They came to give him the food and the water. This is what makes this so amazing. Both the food and the angelic help which Jesus had refused when they were offered in the context of sin are now given to him as the victor over sin and temptation. Remember when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God? What did he say next? And all these things will be added unto you. So I want to recap in closing our takeaways. First, we live in a world that is filled with temptation. You will not be able to avoid it. It's going to come to you every day. Some days are worse than others. Secondly, we know that temptation first asks us to doubt who we are in Christ. The tempter begins his attack almost always getting us to forget or doubt that we are a beloved child of God. The church needs to remind us constantly of our baptismal identity. Perhaps we should keep Luther's technique in mind. Remember what his technique was? Placed his hand on his forehead and said, I have been baptized. So I want us all to practice that. Okay, put your hand on your forehead and say, I have been baptized. Okay, now I know you can do it. That was just practice. The next time you face temptation, use it. Use it. The third thing is that we, like Jesus, have the scriptures. We've got the same resource that he had. So the more time that we spend reading, studying, and memorizing scripture, the better prepared we will be in order to overcome temptation. And finally, when tempted, we, like Jesus, need to keep our focus on God. We need to keep our focus on God. We need to remember to pray for one another so that when we are tempted, we will confirm, not deny, our identity in Christ. Does that make sense? I hope this has been helpful. Let me give us a few minutes for you to spend in conversation with God about where you've been, in facing temptation and where you want to be moving forward. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is not only our Savior. He has gone before us 
to show us what it means to live out our identity as a child of God. Lord, we ask that that we would be able to follow him closely, that we would be able to learn from him, that we would be able to honor him with our very lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.